This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Michael Burge. I'm the author of a new crime thriller coming of age story called Tank Water. It's just hitting bookshelves across Australia this week. And I'm here with Sam Elliott on the Right Way podcast. Looking forward to a chat. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction there, Mike Burge. And hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way podcast program with me, your faithful host, Samuel Elliott. Uh, of the Right Way podcast program, the person whom you just heard speaking then, uh, beautifully introducing this particular episode of the program in a format that you've all come to know and love was none other than today's guest, Mike Burge. Mike and me discussed his debut novel, Tank Water. Uh, prior to writing his debut novel, Mike Burge is an Australian author and journalist living in the deep water region, New England region of New South Wales, uh, has had a very interesting storied sort of career there. I think he's a graduate from NIDA, as well as then going off to do some media studies sort of stuff in the United Kingdom as well. Uh, so very much a man of letters before undertaking uh, always Herculean task of a debut novel. But uh, yes, we mainly discussed his debut novel, Tank Water. Tank Water is centered around uh, character journalist James Brandt returning to the fictional Kippen, uh, Kippen t- rural hometown in which he sort of escaped many years before. Um, there's two different timelines there, uh, that of 2005 as well as 1985 when he was a teenage uh, boy. Uh, Kippen is a town very much like, uh, for those that have grown up in New South Wales or Australia, I guess, it certainly reminded me of a lot of the townships I used to visit when I was a child visiting my grandfather around the south coast and yeah I think that you'll find a lot of similarities there. there's a tremendously strong sense of place without spoiling too much James has been called back to town because his cousin Tony has died under mysterious circumstances supposedly a suicide but that uh, doesn't hold up to scrutiny for too long he's also received uh, Tony's entire estate has been left to him as well so that kind of peaks his journalistic integrity there. Uh, it was a it was a very unique and original novel, at times very confronting just due to the subject matter itself, uh, given that the town is a site to uh, several eras of gay bashings throughout the eras that have reverberated down. And it's something that, again, unfortunately, I don't think is all too dissimilar to what has happened in a great many Australian townships and cities, come to think of it, with the Sydney Bondi Badlands as well. So to that end, I wanted to give a trigger warning now that there is going to be discussion with Mike about uh, all sorts of things of that nature. So gay bashing, homophobia, uh, yeah, anything sort of violence related and ultimately culminating in murder uh, related to homophobia, gay bashings, people preying on gay men and beats, all that sort of stuff has to be discussed because it's featured in the novel and I think it's an important subject to this day. So yeah, just want to give the heads up trigger warning about that now. If that's going to trigger you, then I wouldn't recommend listening to this particular episode. But aside from that, uh, I digress. I'd like to give a big, and all you, to give a big digital round of applause to debut novelist Mike Burge discussing with me his debut novel, Tank Water. Mike Burge, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you going this afternoon? I'm good, Sam. Thank you so much for having me on. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I've ducked out. I'm on my, my work break, as it were. My cat is not here. He's uh, He's been... 
escorted yeah. outside, so he can't he can't mess stuff, he can't port stuff. But uh, no, life's good. Absolutely good. I want to know. I wanted to start, Mike, with. I always like to start off the same question because there's no two answers are the same. And I've noticed that your particular journey towards getting to this point of me talking uh, looks to be an interesting one. I feel like tank water is something that's been in genesis or gestation for something like 10 years, something like that. I looked at the acknowledgements at the back. You yes. kind of charted a bit of that. Yes, it has been a, yes, easily a 10 year journey to, mm. um, to get to the point of having a book in your hand to read. Absolutely. It's been long. <laughs> Tell me about the, where the idea first stemmed from, where you first got that uh, kernel of an idea that ultimately would become Take Water. Sure. Look, for a long, long time, I've wanted to write a novel about the place that I came from, which mm. is the far northern New England region of New South Wales. But I hasten to add that all of the locations, the, the towns and the characters and the families in Tankwater are all fictitious. Mm. When I see them in my mind's eye, they are so different to the people that I know, my family, and even the places, the town itself. But the countryside is most definitely Camilleroy country. It's border country, just to the south of the Queensland border. It runs in a strip sort of west to east. And uh, it's quite a different part of the world. It gets a bad rap a lot of the time, and there's a lot of real beauty up there um, and a bit of a, a past full of great turmoil on the frontier wars, of course. And um, I really... Yes, it took me probably my life up to this point to find the way in to tell that story because it's such a big, it's such a big chunk of the past and the present and the not so distant past, the kind of slightly bad old days. Um, and, um, and yet I think I needed to live long enough to learn to love that countryside and the people there as much uh, as I loved the, the landscape. And um, yes, it took, I think it just took the natural progression of time to get to that point. And uh, by the time I started, it was, um, well, the difference between the time I started the book, the first few years on the manuscript and the way it finished is quite a vast gap um, because I think, yes, it, it's strange. It's almost like a art imitating life, imitating art kind of process is the best way I can describe it. So being a journalist myself, um, I have a protagonist who's a journalist and, and my protagonist, James Brandt, is a journalist. He comes back to his country town. And, um, you know, as I was writing it, I also came back to live not quite in the town where I was born, but almost to the border. And uh, so there was a lot of material there that I could almost journalistically churn into this piece of fiction. So perhaps that's why it took so long. I had to live it first and then live it as I was putting it together. So quite a, <laughs> it's quite a strange thing to look back on. When I think about it. It's interesting that you mentioned that you needed to reach this sort of progression of time to kind of fall in love with the land again before you felt um, kind of comfortable with writing about it. I find that so interesting and I can totally appreciate that because it doesn't feel like this searing condemnation of this entire fictitious town or anything like that. So I can totally see how that would work. With the journalist sort of side of things, I want to know, Mike, with the, because you mentioned about, I think, research, there's a, in addition to acknowledgements, I think there's just a one paragraph, a couple of paragraphs talking about your research as well. I can only yeah. imagine how sort of taxing and depressing, innately depressing that would have sort of been. Tell me a little bit about this research process that you must have undergone through all these years as well. Well, just so your listeners are in on the, in on the picture, the research I did was into what we now know as gay hate crime. Mm. And, and there's no beating around the bush there. It's quite a grisly subject matter. Um, so in New South Wales, 
Uh, in the last decade, we've had what's known as Operation Parabell, which was the New South Wales Police investigating um, up to 90 um, cold cases um, in, uh, from the last 30 to 40 years. So we now know them as historical gay hate crimes. And um, when I decided that I was going to include uh, those in this story, I thought I need to be sure about what happened and where. So I embarked on a few years of research into rural-based gay hate crime without even realising what a challenge that would be because the, um, the ability to uh, explore them, the ones that happen in the city, um, like the well-known cases of Scott Johnson and recently Raymond Keane, um, Ross Warren, uh, also the um, Wollongong newsreader is expected yep. to have been killed in a gay hate crime. Those crimes are hard enough to explore and they took place in the city. Mm. Um, and uh, so you get beyond the Great Dividing Range and they become exponentially more difficult to find. But nevertheless, because of the footwork of people that came long before me, I was able to find them. And they do appear in academic works from criminologists doing decades of work um, and submissions into the recent parliamentary inquiry into gay and transgender hate crime, which had a bracket of years from 1970 right up to 2010. Mm. And um, yes, as I said, it's grisly subject matter. Often these cases kind of hang in the air um, as suspected gay hate crimes. They have certain hallmarks and pathologies that point to it, but they're very, very difficult to isolate. So. As a journalist, I'd never felt like I was working with material that was particularly clear. Mm. Um, and as a journalist, you're not supposed to sort of fill in the dots with opinions and ideas and emotions. But as a novelist, of course, that field is way, way wide open to you. Um, and I certainly took that on and um, searched and worked for uh, many, many years about how to how it feels to be close to those crimes and, um, in fact, the target of them. And um, for many, many years in journalism and also in, around performing arts, which is my other kind of field that I've been in long term, um, I've often encountered this issue. Um, it, it gets asked of actors a lot about um, how do you portray being a victim of an attack or a crime or something negative coming at you. But in actual fact, I think it, over the years, the thing I've learned is that it's actually much harder for someone to portray the perpetrating of, the, to be the mm. perpetrator um, of those crimes because it doesn't really come that naturally. There's, I'm not really, I'm not trying to undermine the status of victims in our culture um, and survivors, um, but uh, to portray, to um, recreate crimes being perpetrated, I actually found that much more difficult than the experience of the victims. And um, I had the very difficult task, which I hasten to add, I set myself, of creating crimes that you actually aren't on the scene when they happen. Mm. And uh, there's great doubt about whether they've taken place at all. It's interesting that you mentioned that, um, Mike, because I was going to ask a little bit about that. And I actually saw a parallel between the way in which it was shown off screen, as it were, these particular crimes. And recently speaking to a screenwriter called Sean Grant about Nitrum, which is about the Port Arthur oh, yes. massacre. I'm not trying to conflate the two, but... Yes, um, no, it, but it's a good field to compare, yes. Yeah, in terms of um, this decision that's been made early on into the process um, to ensure there's not sort of this, this violence that, that's shown 
but revolves around and does so kind of like tacitly implies it. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that actually kind of dovetails into the next question about this decision to, it felt like there was a balance between you ensuring that the story was covered or depicted earnestly, but never verged into sort of gratuitousness of these sort of like long swathes of descriptions of these particular attacks. Like you mentioned, it was, was, was done. So kind of the book equivalent of off screen. I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, Mike, because that feels like it's a decision that's been made and then done so very deftly with your book there. Well, I have a really fantastic writing mentor called yeah. Elizabeth Ferretti. And Liz lives and works in Suffolk in the United Kingdom. Mm. And um, uh, it was Liz who assisted me with this. And it was actually a really handy thing to do. So I actually wrote the scenes of the major crime that takes place in Tank Water, even though it doesn't actually appear in the book. But I needed to write that scene. I needed to know exactly what had happened mm. in order for characters to be on the hunt for the brutal truth behind what actually did take place. And it's something that I never imagined would happen. Um, but it's something that I've been asked about with this book and with other works um, to advise other writers. And I can't advise you more as other writers to actually really write those scenes. I call them ghost scenes because they don't actually appear in the book but you need to have written them. And you also need to have the courage to take them out mm. of the manuscript mm. so that the reader gets an experience, which I think most authors, want, we want readers to have those really keen emotional experiences and the hunt for a truth, whether it's a crime novel or whether it's a historical fiction or something else. So I, I had some really great help with that, um, but I do know that it, it, it takes courage to write those, those scenes and then to take them out. But I think one of the greatest um, exponents of that, of course, is Shakespeare. And um, Shakespeare was just a brilliant master at that off-screen off, off or off-stage crime. Some of the greatest ones, of course, are in the Scottish play. And, um, you know, we've got bleeding knives on stage and the, the murder has taken place off stage. So it's, it's been around probably as long as there's been writing. There's probably Greek tragedies that, that face this particular issue. But it, it, it sweetens the experience. Perhaps sweetens is the wrong word for a crime story or a thriller, but it enhances the experience for the reader no end to actually keep those things back. It is interesting that you do mention that about having the courage to include the scenes and then remove them. I like the description of ghost scenes as well, because I feel that that's, it's within your process, it's kind of shines through as well as what the end result is too. Another aspect I wanted to know about, and we've talked a little bit about sort of the research that you've done and I wanted to know Mike then how you sort of wove this into this story that you wanted to tell because I felt in many many respects and we've talked about obviously it being a fictional setting fictional people um various characters I don't want to name them I wrote them down but I realized that that might actually be a spoiler but but the, the <laughs> cases enough. that are unearthed um by Jamie kind of obviously showing that there's been a pattern sort of intergenerational sort of um gay bash and gay hate that that sort of culminates in these sort of deaths or questionable suicides i wanted then if you wanted to honor those in which you've already found within this sort of uh, real life sphere within these sort of fictional characters or these these sort of nameless victims and how they've remained sort of unseen yeah. and unheard for so long tell me a little bit about that process yes look it comes with from my perspective um a huge amount of respect for the men who lost their lives, but also mm. the many men who were attacked across these years and didn't report or perhaps reported the cases and they weren't investigated properly. There's been years, this issue has been around for a long, long time, but I think probably more 
in a more exaggerated pressing sense across the last decade mm. with Operation Parabell, with uh, state parliamentary inquiries. Um, but it's, um, it's, all, it's preyed on me the whole time because when you read about these real-life crimes, um, there's one in particular which, does, um, which has sort of haunted me. I won't get too specific about this particular case because mm. there are legal issues there. Um, but um, a man was killed by a river in a country town, which was right on the border between the city and the country. And um, the perpetrators, two of them, they were brothers, they actually ended up with just a manslaughter charge and went to prison for a few years. But um, what they did in a very premeditated way was murder this young man. And there were witnesses who were just people simply fishing in boats and by the, by the side of the river. And according to their account, the man who was murdered begged for his life. Mm. Um, and he was shot multiple times in the back as he was running away. Um, now, the, it doesn't take much legal knowledge when you read, the, read this case in the academic records to see that it was premeditated murder because the brothers went from this scene back home to get their weapons, came back and then used them. So that's by any, even the vaguest standard of premeditation, premeditated intent to kill. But nevertheless, this was 40 years ago that the trial happened. And um, who knows, perhaps those, those killers are still now living in the community amongst us. But that was a great tradition mm. in a sense. Um, it, it seems awful to call the killing of people a tradition. But really, what I, to answer your question, I think what I'd, I'd like listeners to understand is that what I was faced with was recreating a world where it was actually considered okay to kill gay men, you mm. know, because, because, you know, gay men weren't considered of any value. They were just poofters and there was poofter bashing attacks. And if on the odd occasion one of them died, then so what? It's a fairly brutal summation, but really underlying all of those cases is that truth. And uh, it's, it, yes, it did, and still does, um, prey on my mind, um, not only for the victim's sake, but, um, you know, yes, recreating those crimes, as I've said, was, was quite tough. But it's a message, I think, that is important to get out there. And I think if fiction is, the, is one channel to explore it through, great. Because once these cases come before courts, um, then, of course, uh, they come under subjudice rules and regulations, laws. Um, which journalists cannot break, or they can, but if they do, they can get in quite deep trouble. So there's been a silence about the Scott Johnson trial and now a silence about the Raymond Keane trial. We get reports regularly about how those trials are progressing, but the analysis of those trials can never happen until there's some kind of verdict, whereas tank water really frees... Uh, it freed me in a fictional sense to really explore the nitty-gritty of the whole darn thing. So much to unpack there from that response. So first and <laughs> foremost, let's, let's, let's touch on what you've just said there in terms of being freeing or freed you to, to explore this. Even just um, with what you've just described there, Mike, I mean, it's, it's so hard to kind of remain dispassionate at, at hearing these sort of cases, and particularly when you, when you describe there as to the sort of um, reasoning or pervasive attitude of the time, whereas if these people died, it was, it was you know, subhuman pretty much um, with the way in which they were treated. How then did you go about crafting this story, which again is probably one of the most earnest sort of stories I've ever read of this nature, 
uh, and remain in such a way as to not be blinded by your own natural sort of emotions that kind of arise from this sort of um, these terrible injustice, injustices that have gone on for so long within 40 odd years or whatever you mentioned the, the yeah. Empire. Look, I think the best way to answer that, that's a really good question, but it, the best way to answer it is, is to, to, to share with your listeners that the, the main prism through which this story in Take Water is told is through a family, through mm. multiple generations of the same family. And my other great passion with writing Tank Water, apart from the setting, the land where I was born and all the romantic um, uh, allegiances that I have with that place, the, the beautiful northern New England, um, of course, it's occupied and has been occupied for thousands of years by families. And more recently, the last 150 years with European settlers' families. And it's those family structures that I know the best, even though mm. I moved away from this region. Um, and I think talking about families, it's sort of like when you think about our real families, you're going to fall flat on your face if you start judging. Mm. And so I just could not judge these characters. To judge them would have been to, it would have ended as a short story. There's so much more to tell. And I hasten to add, I'm not exploring why some men, some very toxic men, explore their homophobia through violence. I'm not exploring that at all. I'm exploring the ramifications and what families and what rural communities do once they know about these cases happening in their town, because that's very unexplored. Mm. It's, it's barely touched on in the um, Operation Parable, barely mentions rural and regional areas. Although the New South Wales police do acknowledge that with an increase in visibility for LGBTIQA plus in the bush, there is a slight, it has been a tradition of slightly being in more danger. But apart from that, it's very unexplored territory. So putting this fictitious family on its feet with the knowledge that I have of not only my own family, but other rural families. And the, the thing that I came across that really surprised me, which I really worked hard to portray in Tank Water, was the way that, that rural families somehow, they, we, we, we have a tradition of digging very, very deep when it comes to facing off against prejudice. Mm. It's almost like once the prejudice is spoken, once, it, once people are aware of it, then the love, the deep, deep love and connection kicks in to a very primal level and people really, really step out of their comfort zones for the sake of their LGBTIQA family members. Now, I hasten to add, it's not all a bed of roses and it doesn't mm. happen everywhere. But the more I talk about this particular issue and the more I write journalism about it, the more I'm finding that in the country, if you are out, uh, you have a safety net in your family. And um, that's the kind of thing I have really tried to analyse in Tank Water. And as you've read it, you'll know that it, that it doesn't result in this revolution of acceptance. It just creates the seeds, the grassroots for acceptance to grow. Well put. Wow, <laughs> reeling from reeling from from how that uh, it's true. I mean, I mean, I don't I don't want to delve too much into what actually happens in the goings on, but I mean, it's it's known after the fact, and I felt that it ended on an uplifting sort of light. But I, again, I don't want to delve too much into that. In terms of this, the familial sort of solidarity, it feels that. And I think that what you've captured there, and I think that this is what maybe you were trying to do, was that there's an insular solidarity within the familial unit, and then there might still be judgment and condemnation of a person, particularly if it's 
I mean, there's one scene where Daniel and Jamie are at the pub and Daniel's going through various different ways trying to justify the environmental cause, et cetera, of his son's <laughs> yes. gayness, which just doesn't stand up to scrutiny within two seconds of it. But I think that that's, that's, that's internal, that's in-house, and then external, the out-of-house, and it kind of prevails towards the end, I feel like the, the climax shows this uh, this family solidarity, I think, what you touched on there, Mike, and that's something that I think is so interesting. I want you to talk a little bit about that as well, this sort of uh, familial solidarity within, and the, even though there's still obviously scrutiny and condemnation of certain uh, things, be it someone's sexual orientation, they don't understand, but then it's us yep. versus the world type situation. I think you really captured yes. that. Yes. Well, just for the sake of your listeners, we can let you in on the truth that Daniel is actually the protagonist's father, and Daniel mm. Oh, sorry, sorry, I should... No, no, that's all right. Daniel is the town's recently retired top cop, which mm. also complicates a lot of James's search for the truth. But they do have a confrontation, uh, a good old verbal slanging match yeah. in the local pub. And um, that was a really fun scene to write. But I think out of all of the scenes that I wrote, it had the most editing, the most reworking to get. Mm. I was trying to get it as realistic as I could because... Of course, it's very public, and, mm. and uh, because there's been a funeral in town, there's trays of sandwiches. All of the tradies are in there getting their their, uh, drink, their drinks because they've knocked off, and uh, there's a lot going on. And yet, this pivotal battle between, well, I guess, yes, it is the battle between the protagonist and the antagonist. Um, but it doesn't take place towards the end of the book. This scene either. Mm. But the um, the I think it, it's that public prison that helped that scene come together because it, it holds back. They both, both James and his father, have to hold back. And um, the other thing I know about um, country families when it comes to uh, gay and lesbian children coming out to them is that there's always a process they go through. It's very rarely an instantaneous acceptance. And, and Daniel certainly doesn't give his son that in that scene, but it does create the germ for that possibility to happen. And so I, I actually, with that scene, had a lot of fun creating the father's response. And as you, as you said, he, he kind of justifies his son's uh, sexuality and he kind of does a lot of gesticulation. And, mm. and it was really fun to describe that. He's like trying to actually get it into a form that he can grab hold of and understand. But I actually think that that sort of thing comes from love. Mm. It comes from um, a deep parental love and um, that they really, it, it, it's kind of a, they kind of feel, they can feel a bit cornered. They can often say, look, back off, just give me some time to think about this. But as you know from having read it, that the dawning knowledge of his son's sexuality is just the very first step to the discovery of what's going on in that town. So there's a lot more for Daniel to come after that. Mm. And um, I think possibly there's a reflection of that scene later on but it takes place in Daniel's mind towards the end of the book. And uh, it sort of speaks to that slightly uplifting possibility at the end. But um, he also, Daniel, you know, he does hold back as a lot of, as a lot of country fathers, I think, ultimately do. So mm. I was bound by, I guess, some real experience of, of countrymen that I know. Um, but I think I, I, I believe that I've done them justice, nevertheless. Very much so. And I think that you're right. I mean, it was like this tangible, he's this tough as nails, very grizzled sort of Aussie dad figure that's trying to, uh, yeah, like find something tangible within describing sexual orientation, which is suddenly but not seemingly beyond him, but he's still kind of thinking out loud there. The way I kind of likened it actually, just thought of it then, is 
the way in which um, Jamie's vegetarianism is is just is <laughs> sort of unwelcome, but just accepted. It's like this thing that there's a, there's a shrug just because it's this inability of self to kind of um, identify or resonate with, with someone being a vegetarian. I thought it was similar, at least from the outset of, of Jamie's of Jamie being gay with his parents, well, particularly with Daniel, I thought that it was somewhat similar. Like it was just this trait that was known to exist, but they didn't really know how to, to resonate with it. And they were kind of struggling thereafter. I don't know. But what do you think? No? Look, that is actually very close to the truth. So when I was 15, um, we had recently not, uh, recently moved from the country. I was mm. living in, in uh, the Blue Mountains out of Sydney, but I had come from this part of the world in the New England. And I became a vegetarian uh, is a de facto means of coming out. Now, at that age, I didn't actually put two and two together to work out that's what I was doing. I came to realise this many, many years later. But I got such a, um, not a negative reaction to being a vegetarian, but a confronting one. It certainly confronted people enough and I thought, ooh, no, no, coming out as gay is not going to be, <laughs> it's not going to be anything like this. It's going to be worse. But I tell you, all these years later, moving back to this part of the world as I did four years ago, it is actually worse, I think. It's considered slightly worse to be vegetarian in the bush than it is to be gay. <laughs> and uh, that's very interesting. I laugh about it a lot. And, uh, but, you know, the first dinner party I ever went to in my life where I wasn't the only vegetarian was here in the country. So there you go. <laughs> it's so good to hear. Look, I, I mean, uh, you're delving with some very, very grim subject matter naturally because of, because, of, because of the nature of what's going on there. But, I mean, there was some times of pretty soaring beauty there, Mike. I mean, you've mentioned, like, this love of, love of setting and the, the place and how, you know, it was informed by much of your, your upbringing there. And I certainly felt that as well. I also felt that, and I know, like, just by virtue of what it was because it kind of had to be clandestine in terms of sort of what developed between Jamie and Tony, but I felt that one of the best shining examples of... Uh, of becoming oneself was the burgeoning sexuality and the depiction of that. And that's not something easy to do. I actually think it's uh, innately probably more easy to write a scene which, which is confronting and violent than it is to write something that someone can relate to that's sexual in nature and about burgeoning lust and teen or mm. teenage want of, of another, of another, of another man. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that as well, because that in itself, I think is probably, they say in the film, never work with cats and kids. I feel like in writing a lot of the time that can be, don't write about love and sex. So tell me about that sort of process there. Well, look, the, the, it, it really isn't a spoiler to explain that James, the protagonist in the, in the storyline, which takes place 20 years prior to the, um, the 2005 storyline, when he was a teenager, um, he had his first sexual experience. It's, 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 it's as much of a coming-of-age story, Tankwater, as it is a crime thriller. Mm. It's kind of a, a wonderful combination of both. And that is for a reason, because when you're... Well, I, I can only speak for myself, but um, when I, in the 1980s, I was a teenager and um, my, I was becoming aware of my sexuality. Um, but in the context of the places where I lived, it came with an edge of danger because... Mm. Uh, this was the peak of the 1980s panic because of HIV AIDS. Yep, yep. Um, the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Australia, in New South Wales had only just happened in 1984. It started in uh, South Australia in the mid-70s. And that process lasted until, I think, 1997 in Tasmania. So it was a 30-year process to decriminalise homosexuality. So now that when it landed in um, New South Wales, I wasn't even aware of it. I was just too scared to have that antenna on anything at all 
But my point is that it takes a long, long time after the laws change for culture to change. Yeah. So, so I think what I've done with Tank Water is try to recreate that sense of danger mixed with wonder and desire in James's coming of age story. And I had to live vicariously through many straight friends who have told me about their amazing sexual adventures when they were teenagers, but I was just far too scared to act on. Um, it, it, it just felt like it was going to lead me to death and, and danger of a far too greater level. Um, and um, yeah, so although I, I do have, um, I did have a friend, unfortunately, who's since passed on, who, who explained her wonderful, lusty life as a teenage lesbian. And I was in equal parts jealous and amazed by Madeline's um, courage. Mm. And she was just that little bit older than me. So it was taking place slightly further back in time. Um, but nevertheless, the cons- there were consequences for her and um, they, weren't, they weren't all pleasant. But nevertheless, she was so compelled. So I, I had some real life tales there to draw on. But certainly that, that internal sense of danger uh, as a teenage gay man who knew by the age of 14, undoubtedly that he was gay, but had no safety net to actually express that in the world where I was, um, that it, it, it was just, it just felt like it was going to be bad news. And I think I've, I've certainly recreated that with James. I think that's where he and I coalesce as author and character closest is in that realm. Um, and uh, certainly when you're writing about gay hate crimes, they are indelibly linked to sex and sexuality of some kind. I mean, unfortunately, in this realm of crime history, we're, we're looking at everything from entrapment mm. uh, for gay men who get arrested um, having sex at beats through to uh, rape, through to murder uh, or attacks. I mean, many, many men who were attacked or are attacked actually don't report. They, they may be closeted. They may not identify as gay. There's a, a term that's come through which I don't use in the book, but it, it, it is um, a relevant term. It's called an MSM, man who has sex with men. Uh, they don't identify as, as gay. And uh, it's been a struggle for all kinds of services, even in modern times, the police services, to get information through to these men. And it certainly was a challenge during the HIV AIDS epidemic to, um, to communicate with them in any way. And... Um, their prevalence in the country is often completely denied because they seem to be completely invisible. But certainly this tinge of invisibility assists them to stay alive um, or to at least live comfortable lives because invariably they'll be married or in a relationship with um, a a straight relationship of some kind. Um, So, yes, it's a very vexed subject matter that we're talking about. It's the, the, the grisly side of it is the death and and attacks, but there's also a cultural side which is um, is can be very misunderstood. Um, a lot of the times, as gay men, we get asked about it, but but we're not experts in it either. So it's um, I had to do uh, a lot of thinking and reading about beat culture among gay men, and um, you know I had my own experience with beats as I was coming in, in my coming out process. Um, and they certainly, I mean, they get your heart racing, that's for sure, that's for sure. Mm. and not just for, not just sexual arousal, but also fear. And, um, yeah, that's all I'll, I'll say about that. It's, a, it's, uh, it's not something I'm proud of, but it's not, not something that I necessarily judge myself for. But, again, um, I have 
recreated that world, I think, in a, in a way which begs understanding rather than judgment. That's a very good way of putting it. And I mean, I, totally you're right. I mean, you have created a world in which there is definitely this element of fear as well as synced with the, the burgeoning sort of sexuality there, which is just so strong in, in any life, particularly with an odd argue with a young teenager um, to do that. And I feel that what's sort of been created there as well with this element of fear is the, the cyclical nature of the gay bashing of the murder that kind of uh, has taken place. And you've made a point of it, obviously, with alluding to several, or detailing several different cases that take place. Um, not only that, but I thought it went extended as far as the same sort of uh, verbiage or wording that was used um, as in going to sh- going shooting ruse. Uh, mm. And it was many a times it was celebrated on occasion. I think you mentioned offhandedly, but about, about um, how it was perceived as this sort of great ceremony, uh, just uh, considered just any other sort of pastime. It's just going and doing that. I want you to talk a little bit about that, Mike, because to me that's, that's sort of um, so ingrained within this fictional township and no doubt was pervasive throughout many a real life place and how you went about sort of capturing and depicting that so that it kind of surfaced within the tank wall, albeit just over the surface. Yeah. Look, I think out of everything that I've recreated in Tank Water, it's in this zone, which I have the very least experience of. Mm. I have never, I've never been physically attacked for being gay. I've been verbal quite a few times. As I was verbal, I was probably putting myself way, way out there for the marriage equality campaign. Mm. And I hasten to it, I don't think you deserve to be verbal simply because you're protesting or you're campaigning for your human rights. But nevertheless, as a consequence, it wasn't that much of a surprise. Um, me and my husband got verbaled here in our country town probably a year or a bit ago. It was a bit of a surprise. It hadn't happened for a while. Um, certainly when they announced the public vote approach to marriage equality that very day, living in Queensland as, we're, as we were at that time, that actual day the verbal abuse started. So it was a very interesting process. But your question was about this cyclical nature of, mm. of gay hate crime. Um, it, uh, it, doesn't take much, it doesn't take long when you're researching this to realise that when they say historical gay hate crime, they really are talking history. Mm. I mean, you, I've done a study um, right as far back as I can find in rural regions of um, incidents of uh, gay men or men who may have been gay or may not have been, but sort of falling foul of the law for being suspected of being gay. And it's very difficult to find because um, a lot of the time the charge they were up for was something very vague, like vagrancy mm-hmm. or um, public indecency or solicitation, you know, anything, anything but the truth. Um, and these cases were often pushed into city courts and so um, they kind of disappeared from the record. Um, but nevertheless, you, as I said, it doesn't take you long when you're researching it to see that it, it does follow a pattern and the pattern does repeat. And that's simply because there's no generation in which there's been more or less gay people or lesbian or transgender or intersex people. We've always been there. It's just our visibility is increasing. It's not like there's something suddenly in the water <laughs> out here and we're, we're on the increase. It's simply that we have always been there. So we have generally always been targeted and uh, as being different. And so... I realised that that was another aspect of this town, this fictitious town story. But I certainly saw that in real towns, in real locations, and turned that into this process that, that uh, suddenly becomes much bigger task 
uh, for James to get his head around in this story. Mike, do you think that just opponent? Do you think that the situation has remedied somewhat? I mean, like, is it still as pervasive as it was with all the, the sort of investigation that you've done, all the historical sort of talk about historical sort of cases? Do you think that the situation is sort of improving, or is this still very much going on? Yes, it's a good. That's a good question, and I have been asked that question for quite a few years now, even long before Tank Water came out, because I went public a bit about some of my searches for these crimes. Um, and as I said, the, the terms of reference for the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry into gay and transgender hate crimes, their bracket was 1970 to 2010. Yeah, when I saw that announced, mm -hmm. I thought, wow, that's actually quite late. But then I remember during the um, plebiscite on marriage equality, which wasn't really a plebiscite, remember, it was a survey conducted by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. It was voluntary for people to take part in. But during that process, which was only 2017, so what's that, four years ago, there were gay hate crimes in this country and they were reported. Um, one of the, the, some of the ex more extreme ones ended up in hospitalizations of the, of the people who were attacked. Um, but uh, I guess the public nature of a lot of those attacks meant that they didn't thankfully result in deaths. Although I've learnt, what I've learned over the years is that um, we should never be surprised if, mm. um, any murder turns out to be hate crime. And I don't just mean gay hate crime, there's racial gay hate crime. There's all forms of hate crimes. And um, I think as a term, it's become a good uh, way, a shortcut to actually get to the, to the truth and to encourage police and other investigators to get to the truth of these things. One of the big outcomes of Operation Parable, of course, was um, a... I'm trying to pick the right word here because not everyone will agree with me, but I certainly am along the spectrum of agreement with this. And that is that the police are improving what they do. It's not really a revelation to say that a lot of the times gay hate crimes were perpetrated by police. Mm. And um, those, I guess, are the bad old days. But um, I know it's a pressing issue and I, I don't, I, a current issue and a future issue the relationship between the LGBTIQA community and the police force is uh, an ongoing issue. It's an ongoing challenge for both sides. Um, so, yeah, I hope that answers your question. It's a, it's a, um, I think there's every potential for future gay hate crimes to happen, let me put it that way. I think the ingredients are still there in some parts of this country and, and uh, certainly in other parts of the world, which is an issue a lot of Australian LGBTIQA plus are concerned about um, other places regularly appear in the news where it's considered to be okay to throw a gay man off the top of a building to do away with a lesbian woman and um, I say that lightly but I don't mean it lightly it's mm. it's uh, it's certainly with us to stay for a shorter time as we can possibly hope for fingers crossed it's a, I mean, it's a good question. It's a good answer, sorry. And it's a, it's a hard question to kind of give any sort of um, definitive answer towards, I guess. And I think you are right signing the sort of plebiscite and the sort of backlash that came through from that as well, because that sort of brought to the fore, at least for me, hearing you talk as well as cases that were going on at the time, uh, sh shocked shocked me uh, in terms of some, some of those sort of opinions or uh, hate sort of emerging from the woodwork and otherwise I would have, would have foolishly thought would have been eradicated at least on somewhat more of a grand scale uh, and, you know, not hearing anything about that sort of thing on such a, such a grand scale. So it's, it is saddening. I think that there is some 
some hope for the future. I guess the way I would kind of look at it is with books like Tank Water bringing forth a robust discourse as this, <laughs> um, would then to me suggest that because what, 30, 30 odd years ago, I don't know, I don't think, I don't think Tank Water would be coming out, you know, I don't think it'd be published. So the fact that this is published, we're getting to talk now and bring to ideally to the fore as well as the listenership here and, and whoever else. I think that that then kind of gives a good indication that, that at least the discourse is happening to kind of uh, address these issues. Whereas before and kind of like such as what Jamie's experience within the, the fictional realm of tank water, um, whereby they, they would never be addressed within any sort of capacity at all. And just again, push back into the shadows is now being brought forth and giving some sort of transparency to these sort of ongoing issues. They definitely haven't been completely eradicated or never be so, uh, juveniles to think that but still i think that mm. with the with tank water coming out and books of that ilk then maybe maybe the discourse can then bring about more kind of societal change no oh well fingers crossed that it's a positive byproduct but i think anna solding at midnight sun publishing deserves an accolade for having enough guts to publish this book because you're right 30 years ago i don't think a book like this would have got anywhere near to the level of publication and distribution that it is getting. Mm. And I, I really thank readers for reaching out to um, embrace this particular title, but it is all down to Anna Solding because I, um, yeah, I had a, a long process to, to get this book picked up for publication. And um, I know it was considered seriously by a few, but um, and Anna gave it its due consideration. But um, part of the research I did was to to look at what Australian fiction and non-fiction has been published about gay men in re rural regions. Mm. And um, it's very, very thin on the ground. And, but I'm so, I was so pleased and heartened and actually supported by the wave has already started. So we have books like you know, Invisible Boys by Holden Shepherd and The Boy from the Mish by Gary Linesborough, both of which tell stories in young adult fiction um, context about rural gay boys and men and um, certainly as I saw those coming through I was like yes 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 finally this drought may break because uh, yeah to be really honest I found it tough as a first time gay author writing gay themes um, the publishing industry didn't have the, the the drawbridge drawn down too far for us and um, you know, it's not to say there hasn't been gay literature in Australia. We reach right back into the past with David Maloof's Jono, with Holding the Man, of course, in the 1990s. Um, and there's all sorts of examples of gay men popping up in popular culture. And it's been a real pleasure to, to, to find those by, by researching them. Um, some of the most interesting in a country context took place on uh, primetime television in A Country Practice, which was on the box when I was a kid as a teenager. And um, there were, uh, that's a fictitious country town, Wandon mm. Valley. And uh, there were gay characters popping up in that, um, in those storylines from very early on in this, in their episodes. So from as early as 1982, those stories were being told. And then they did a gay hate crime themed storyline in the very early nineties. And um, they handled them incredibly well, I thought for the, for the era. And um, those, the, the screenwriters and the, the producers should be really commended for that. And it was, and of course, gay themes popped up in shows like the um, Flying Doctors and, and, and other Australian um, TV shows. So we've always been around, but a bit at the margins. And, and um, 
look, if, if Tank Water is the first example of people reading about rural gay experiences, they're going to find a lot more in there apart from just the gay hate crime theme too, yeah. of course. Um, you know, uh, gay men in the bush are much more dimensional than just the, the crimes that we, that we um, are at the wrong end of. Um, but, yeah, I just really underline my thanks and my gratitude to Anna at Midnight Sun because I found out I, I actually met her in this part of the world very um, fortuitously through the New England Writers' Centre, uh, which is the New England's regional writers' group um, and service, and they, do a, they have a great outreach program, and they brought Anna to this region in 2018. I got to meet her. It was one of those speed dating like experiences mm, mm. that are becoming very, very common for writers. And I had never done one. I, none of the writers' friends that I had had ever done one. And everyone was really dubious about it. And like, They're oh, what do you, yeah. you pay a bit of money, which is fair enough. And you get your 10 minutes. Uh, I've noticed a few of them have dropped down to four minutes and three minutes. I would be far too scared to do that. But particularly in front of people. But this one was at the Armadale Bowling Club. It was very low-key. It was very quiet. And they rang a little bell and you've shifted tables. And anyway, I met two publishers that day, both of which wanted to see the manuscript um, and one of which Anna Solding picked it up. About a year later, we had a book deal on the table. And um, I, I never would have got to that stage without um, that regional writer's centre support, which... Um, is one of the huge benefits. I mean, I've lived in cities all over the world and tried to get book deals for the last 30 years and never achieved that. So coming back home to this part of the world and having that as a, a means of getting a publishing deal was really, really heartening. I'm still very deeply moved by it and uh, it was such great news. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it, I'm very proud of the fact that tank water is now an export commodity of the New England region a region much more well-known for its agricultural commodities, which are all very good and well, but, and we've got a few political exports that not all of us are, are particularly oh. enamoured of. So um, tank water is another, uh, another aspect of the New England for people to enjoy and to experience as opposed to those other ones. So, Mike, what I always like to do, I'm not sure if you've listened to any episodes of the podcast before, but I really enjoy hearing from writers about one particular part of the journey uh, that you might have encountered at any one time and you've had such a storied career with being involved in journalism as well as I think you're a graduate of NIDA and all this other stuff, cool stuff you've been to London. What point, and it could have been when you were writing Tank Water, but at what point was there ever you sort of reached a crossroads whereby you weren't sure if you were going to continue with this writing thing, yeah? It was, it was, it was a sort of existential crisis, demon of self-doubt, something like that. Do you have something in, in mind? And how did you prevail to get through that point? Yeah, that's a really, really, really good question. <laughs> I think you get some fantastic answers to this. Beautiful. Um, look, I, I only ever gave up or tried to give up once or said that I would give up once. And it mm. was actually during the... It was actually... In the, in, the, in the period of time after I had been to that um, speed dating writing pitch session and getting offered a book deal. And I, I had been trying so long. Um, in my case, look, it, from the very first time I sent out a, um, um, a manuscript for publication uh, to the point where we are now is 33 years. So I had 33 years of, of sending out scripts, screenplays, 
short stories, uh, novel manuscripts. I've been writing since I was quite young. So I accept and look back at those early years now and completely understand why those early works were never picked up. And I got some lovely encouraging um, rejection letters. But I've been doing this for so long, I've seen rejection letters change. <laughs> it's very, very interesting. You used to get some constructive responses. In some cases, some of the screenwriting programs I sent to, you got a really detailed reader's report. Now, of course, uh, a lot of you, your authors um, and listeners will be aware of the complete and utter silence mm. <laughs> that comes back from what I call the black hole. And that really did get to me in one conversation I had with my husband. And I'm so grateful to him and so um, grateful that I had someone to, to take those feelings to because I was basically saying to him, look, I think I need to give up for my own sake, for my own mental health. Because um, it just is such a mystery sometimes when you just don't get a response. And um, look, I, at that point, had had many, many pieces of journalism published, not too many, and not particularly in the fields that really interested me. As a journalist, I've been much more of a sub-editor and an editor than I ever was a, a writer or reporter, although I do have writing reporting chops as a journalist. But it had never really been in the fields that engaged me and drove my passions. So I always sort of kept, felt a bit sort of kept back uh, from writing and being an author. And I, I hasten to add, I had this terrible sense of being cursed as well, which is, I laugh about it when I say it now, but when you feel that in the moment, you, you, feel, you feel really bereft. You just don't feel like people are understanding you. Um, my husband, Richard, was a chef for 25 years and I used to say to him, look, can you imagine like, cooking the most amazing menu of meals and they all go on the tables and no one eats them. Mm. You know, this is the, this is the raw brass tacks, the hard graft of being a writer. And um, I also went through a process of having a look. I think it was quite wise of someone, someone probably said this originally, but, and a lot of people have talked and written about it, this idea of, of achieving 10,000 hours of something to get to a point of being, uh, having mastery in it. So once when I was uh, traveling to Sydney from deep water, it's, a, it's an all day journey on the coach and train, I really decided, right, I'm going to see if I have done my 10,000 hours as a writer. I'm gonna really heart to heart with myself, sit with my notepad and actually look at what I've written. And look, I surpassed the 10,000 hours, really. <laughs> like I really surpassed those 10,000 hours yet I had still not manifested a book deal. So I was, I was worried for myself. I thought, what, what, what is it that's missing? And, um, you know, I, I had actually independently published some work earlier in the marriage equality campaign because I couldn't find um, publishers that were willing to take it on. I had a couple of very strong bites, uh, but no one willing to commit. And um, so I self-published them. And I learned a huge amount about the publishing process during that. And I had... Um, worked in publishing many, many years ago as well. So I had some experience in how to, how to do it. And it's become so easy now relatively with um, print on demand services. And when I say easy, I mean affordable. It's far too easy to self-publish. You can do something and then hit that button. It's just, you just shouldn't do it. Um, so I just, yeah, it was a very black moment. I thought I'm, I, I may actually have to give up but you know what? A still little small part of me deep down inside was still inside just going, I'm not really going to. I'm just trying this on. 
I'm just saying if it's okay, I'm just dipping my toe in that water. Um, and look, by that stage, I was in my late 40s and um, my life in many, many ways is so rich that I think had I given up, I would not have been bereft. Mm. But I'm just not hardwired to not write. So I just, I just literally couldn't. It's just impossible. It's impossible to give up. And, um, you know, um, by the time I, did, I got a call from Anna completely out of the blue, I was in the middle of doing something else with our business, that, the business that Richard and I run. And I um, uh, got the call from her and I thought, oh, why is she calling me? And then, of course, she asked me if the, if the property is still available, the intellectual property being the manuscript. And, of course, it was very much available. No one else was remotely interested. <laughs> and um, the rest is history. Um, and it's, it's been an absolute thrill. It's been an... I can't... I really... I can't put into words that the, the change, um, the feeling that that brings. Uh, it's, it, um, and with the first reviews that have come out of the book, particularly the very first one, um, which was absolutely... Like I, I could have written it myself, not through, not its superlative praises, but its its level of understanding of what I was trying to achieve, and and I think that shows a very slow cooked manuscript. It's got a lot of depth to it, a lot of nuance, and and um, yeah, I was really thrilled to read those early reviews. Just just from that perspective of being understood, it's like someone eating Richard's delightful food. They enjoyed the flavours. They enjoy the texture, you know, so it's, I really, look, there's no easy solution for people who um, are, are aiming at publication. There's, mm. there's, there's no formula. There's a million and one ways to try doing it. But the thing that I am glad that I did is that I, with, with manuscripts that have value, I didn't just let them linger in the desk drawer. Mm. I put them out there. I think, you know, look, if, so many writers are cited as um, success stories of independent publishing. Most of them are fairly back in the past. Like I'm reading at the moment about the Bronte family. Um, their first works were self-published. Their poem, their collection of poems. Beatrix Potter self-published a certain amount. Um, a lot of other big name authors from history were self-published initially. And I think it's a really great way to start. And so I encourage emerging writers always to test the market, but don't test it for too long. Don't, mm. um, yeah, I think there's a fine line. Um, and if you've had good responses from readers to your manuscripts, then really do consider independently publishing or going with a joint venture publisher. Just be cautious about being a bit ripped off. I think this is, there's some terrible... Um, Terrible stories about people, you know, parting with a bit too much money for the process. But there are some fantastic joint venture publishers in the world now, some of them in Australia, and, they, and I think you get a lot of bang for your buck. And uh, you're getting your book out there. You're getting your meals served. And really, the product is indiscernible from a traditionally published book when you see it on the shelf. And uh, if you've done your best work and you've been objective enough to have it proofread, to have it edited by somebody else, you've handed the processes over, including the cover, then more power to you. You're joining a great tradition and uh, far better to join that tradition than actually to stay silent and hide your manuscript away. But um, now that I'm what's known as a hybrid author, I've independently published and I've been traditionally published, uh, I, I don't know, I think I represent, you know, 
the full spectrum of possibilities there. And um, I think just always hold out hope for yourself. Don't give up. That's the thing. Don't give up. Um, but I do acknowledge that it's, it, you get to some pretty dark places with it. I think the best thing you could do if you were not in a relationship or, or had someone that you could share that with very, very close to you, the best thing to do is to just ask somebody to read your work because that forms a relationship of some kind, whether it be a friend or whether it be a colleague. Just get that work out there. Have it read. Just have it read. It's a very courageous thing to do. And um, when you have it read, make sure it's someone that you trust and who's willing to um, be really honest with you. And I think that will only help you. So I hope that answers your question. I just wasn't hardwired to give up deep down, but I certainly tried it on for a minute. <laughs> it does. It does answer the question, and I'm very. It, it, I draw a lot of parallels to my own self there, my own still uh, arduous perennial journey of of finding of finding publication there, Mike. So certainly, I agree with you in terms of um, experiencing self doubt and and talk of um, of of giving up. And yeah. but not really. But the, like it's... The, th the thing is, for, for writers, I, I b truly believe this. I think that readers are half the experience of a book, whether mm. it's fiction or nonfiction. And so we, I think innately, deep down, we know that. And we want to connect with people because they, they, they bring our words to life. They, mm. they really do in their imagination. It's very esoteric, very invisible process. And we yearn for that contact as much as we do for, you know, the book on the shelf as, mm. as pleasant and, and, and as inspiring and as wonderful as that is to see your book on a shelf in a state that's not yours and people are loving it or whatever. Um, it's a deeper connection that we need and you can achieve that with your manuscript with just one other person. And so that's why I say reward yourself with allowing people to, to, to enjoy the work, to share it, to experience it, regardless of what the publishing industry is doing at that particular point in time. It's so true about sharing it. The thing that I find so cool about reading is that it's this medium unlike any other in terms of it's this meeting and melding of two different imaginations. Yeah, it's what you've written and what you see in your mind's eye. And then whoever is engaged with the book and reading it is they're crafting it in their mind's eye as well. But no two are the same, you know. And then when no. you see like film adaptions, people say, well, I didn't envision it as that person. You know, other people say <laughs> that's perfectly cast kind of thing. It's crazy. It's the craziest sort of uh, creative medium, I find. Yeah, it is. That's right. And you, you have an argument. So, no, the hero is blonde. No, no, the hero is a redhead. And then you both look at the book and they're not. They're a brunette. Mm. It's just that our imaginations start to lead the story in, in essence or participate in the story. I think it's an amazing process. It's very hard to talk about because it's all really kind of airy-fairy, but it's, <laughs> it, it's genuinely real, I think. Look, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today on the Right Way podcast program, man. I'm so glad. It's so good. It's such a good story to, to hear. One, your story of, of your journey to success. Two, how well Tank Water is doing. And yet, three, just having the pleasure of talking to you. I thoroughly enjoyed Tank Water. Uh, daringly original. I feel like that might be a little bit trite, but that's still like kind of how I, how I view it <laughs> thank as. Thank you. I'll take it. I'll take blessing. it. That's very kind of you. But and no. um, listen, thank you, Sam. And look, it's a very auspicious week for you, let me just say, because I did notice a couple of days ago you said to your social media audience that you have completed your manuscript. So I'm really thrilled to be thank you. a podcaster interview on that week because that is, a, that is a monumental. That's like finishing multiple marathons 
So let me celebrate you and say congratulations. Thank you, mate. Bless you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Yeah, it's, 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 it's slowly, yeah, it will take a, it's a long, you know, the fun part now begins. But no, I really appreciate you giving me the shout out. That's so nice of you to say. Oh, good on you. Good on you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. So everyone, there you have it. That was me discussing with Mike Burge, his debut novel, a tremendously powerful debut novel, I should add, Tank Water, which is now out with their good folks at Midnight Sun Publishing. So to that end, and as you've come to become familiar with and expect nothing less, I'll put it into the biography description, however which way you want to word it for this particular episode on Spotify there. The links to... Uh, Midnight Sun Publishing, specifically Mike Burge's Tank Water page there, so you can get a copy of Mike's debut novel, as well as check out all the other really awesome titles that Midnight Sun are publishing as well. Again, huge thanks to Mike Burge for talking with me about Tank Water on the program. Absolute pleasure to talk to him about that, delve into the nitty gritty of that. Um, and also huge thanks to you, dear listener, as well, for always listening to the show, going back and listening to any and all other episodes of the program now. I think we're getting, I think we've got about one more guest before 50, and I think that there will be more than 50 guests before the uh, before the program wraps up for the year and has its first birthday. So yeah, keep on keeping on with that. Um, keep listening to the episodes that you haven't already. Also, be sure to give a follow on Spotify if you haven't done so. Tell your friends about the program, tell everyone, tell your hairdressers. If you're in Sydney now, you're getting your haircut or hopefully going to be getting a haircut within the, the foreseeable future. They're probably going to be backlogged for about six months or booked out, but uh, that's good. I'm glad to see that the hairdressing industry is hopefully going to be doing well as the rest of Sydney somewhat returns to some semblance of this new norm that we find ourselves in. But anyway, I digress. Thanks for listening to this episode. More coming your way shortly. And keep on keeping on. Keep reading good books. Keep encouraging Australian authors, debut novelists such as Mike. And I will too with my program. Thank you.